you see this basket behind you, your job is to stop players from getting there. Your job is to make them miss their shot then collect the rebound, throw it up to the guard, let them go down the other end and score it. And your job is to cruise up to half court and kind of see what's going on. And it was this very short comment and very short period of time, but it was life-changing for me because he took the mystery out of the game of basketball for me. He showed me something that I could really be great at at that moment in time. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am so excited to share with you today's guest. Mark Eden is a successful, award-winning motivational speaker, entrepreneur, and best-selling author of The Four Commitments of a Winning Team. He's spoken to numerous world-class organizations, including IBM, FedEx, Philips 66, Caesars Entertainment, T-Mobile, LG, as well as government agencies and universities at every level. He's been featured as a team-building expert in print and online for publications such as Forbes.com, Sports Illustrated, and entrepreneur.com. Many are going to remember him as a seven foot four NBA All-Star who played for the Utah Jazz for 12 seasons, led the NBA in block shots in four of those seasons, was named to the NBA All-Defensive Team five times, and still holds two NBA records, most blocks in a single season and career average block shots per game. Mark, there's so much more we can talk about. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Richard. I think the interview is longer. The introduction is longer than the interview. Is. <laughs> well, it, it, there's a lot to lot to digest there for sure. You know, your, your journey is so interesting because you had this whole path to the NBA, and we're going to talk about that. And now you're doing something that's completely different, although thematically connected to what you did in in basketball in terms of teams and winning. So let's talk about what it was like for you in your journey to the NBA. Is this something that you just knew when you were young was going to happen? Was that a dream? Did, you know, I mean, you obviously were pretty tall growing up. So how did that all unfold? Well, um, it's a bit of a, a remarkable journey uh, because uh, I, I grew up in Southern California and I was always tall. My father is six, nine. My mother was six feet tall. And we had a very tall family, um, but I wasn't necessarily that good at sports. Um, I was growing a lot and in high school, messed around with a few different sports, but on the basketball team specifically, I kind of sat at the end of the bench and didn't really, didn't play that well and didn't play that much. The coach didn't know what to do with me. And I was growing by leaps and bounds and kind of uncoordinated at the end of my senior year. I was like, okay, you know, it doesn't look like sports is going to be the thing for me. And it's probably time to go either to junior college or get a job or something. And uh, so I basically left basketball behind at age 18, and I, uh, uh, I'd grown up in a very blue-collar family. My father was a vocational educator in diesel mechanics, worked on boats uh, for a living as, as a hobby in the evenings. So I grew up doing that with him, and a friend of mine was going to trade school in Arizona to learn to be an auto mechanic, and he called me and said, hey, you want to go with me? 
uh, one year you get an auto service technician certificate and then you could get a job as an auto mechanic. I'm like, well, I'm not doing anything else. That sounds like reasonable, reasonable as anything. And so um, I spent a year in Arizona going to this trade school, came back to California. My first job, I, I was at a Cadillac dealership. It was a job that was way over my head and I got fired after about six weeks. And I ended up in this tire store in this town of Buena Park, California. And I was there for about a year and a half. And it was a very busy intersection. And we were paid straight commission. So I was always out on the lot talking to customers, trying to sell them something. And um, a junior college coach came around the corner from the local junior college, saw me there, and was like, wow, what's this seven-foot tall guy doing out there talking to this customer? And he pulled in. Um, and start talking to me about playing basketball. And although everybody that came in my shop talked to me about playing basketball. When you're seven foot four, that's the number one question you get. And I'm more interested in looking at a break job or figuring out, you know, what I can, what I can uh, talk, you know, what I can sell you with, in terms of repairing your car. Um, but he, um, he, over a period of time, started talking to me about basketball from a whole different perspective because he had worked with some uh, big guys and knew things specifically about being a center or a five man on the basketball team that I didn't really know about. Uh, and uh, so after uh, uh, many, many visits, he convinced me to go out on the basketball court with him for 30 minutes. And I did that one Saturday morning. And uh, he started showing me some of these, these easy moves that I could make near the basket that didn't require a lot of dribbling, and not necessarily a whole ton of athletic skill. And it was intriguing enough to where I decided to start working with him in the evenings after work. Did that for about four months and then decided to go back and play junior college basketball um, and give it, just give it a try and see where it would go. And there was, you know, obviously the whole transition process of going from a guy who was bending wrenches and eating junk food to an athlete was a whole story in and of itself. But um, I eventually went to junior college there at Cypress College and, um, and this coach continued to work with me, continued to show me what I needed to do. And um, so I spent, spent two years at the junior college, had a very successful time there. Things got better. I quit my job as a mechanic. I got a job selling cars. I worked as a bouncer to pay the bills and then was recruited by a lot of schools and eventually decided to go to UCLA as it was one of the biggest names in college basketball at that time and ended up sitting on the bench for two years there. <laughs> so that was kind of the, the beginnings of it. Then I can, I can take you through the rest of it if, if you want to go from there. I, I do, but I want to revisit some things. So when how tall were you your senior year in high school? Were you fully seven foot four uh, yet? No, or? I was like six ten or six eleven when I graduated. So I grew till I was about um, twenty or twenty one years old. So my my question is this: because you know you're still six ten, six eleven at the age of eighteen, were people putting in your head at that point in time, or was was the thought like I'm gonna, I'm going to play at a professional level? Was that was that in your mind at any point when you were young? No, not at all. I, I played sports because my friends played sports and. And we'd grown up playing in the park together. And, and uh, so, and really the basketball coach was the one that talked me into trying out for the team. And, and uh, but I really didn't like basketball because I had had no success at it. And, you know, typically high school basketball coaches, especially in the seventies was like, Hey, you're the English teacher. You want to be the basketball coach? Here's an extra 1500 bucks. Go have fun. And so there wasn't a lot of, you know, they didn't have AAU and these highly specialized programs like they have now to teach uh, young guys how to really be a great basketball player. And so unless you invested in a summer camp or something like that, you really didn't have much exposure to other coaches and other ways of learning how to play the game. And, uh, and so I just, I wasn't successful at it. It wasn't fun. And I was like, okay, I'm done with it. 
it's interesting, you know, two other reflections that I have as I'm, as I heard your share was one, uh, how interesting that you were kind of in the right place at the right time for this Cyprus college, uh, junior college coach to, to see you and, and kind of start this journey for you. And two, how interesting that just having, and it, we see this in so many different aspects of life, having the right coach who can pull the right talents out of you was what shifted everything for you. Yeah, awesome. yeah, and seeing something that you don't see in yourself. You know, for mm-hmm. me, I was just this tall guy that had failed at basketball. And I was like, okay, I'm seven foot four. I don't know what to do with that. But in the meantime, I'm just going to work. And, and I always kind of felt like there was something else out there for me to do. I didn't know what it was. In the meantime, I'm like, well, I'm happy working on cars. And you know, it was a good job. And, and um, I worked with some fun people. And so, um, but, but yeah, the coach was like, he, he had the experience in the background that, that I knew nothing about. And so to your point about having that right coach at the right time, my life has been a series of that. Were there other schools you were seriously considering besides UCLA or was it always going to be the Bruins? I know I looked at some other schools, but the allure that UCLA had gone to the NCAA final game the year before against Louisville in 1980 and lost to Daryl Griffith, who became my teammate a couple of years later, interestingly enough. And I just, you know, I just thought if I turned down UCLA, will I always regret it? So it was a, it was a, it was a little bit of a, of a risk for me because I, I know I could have gone to some smaller schools or Pepperdine recruited me, University of Washington, University of Iowa, some other schools. But I, I wanted to stay close to home in Southern California and, and it didn't get any bigger than UCLA in Southern California. So that's, um, that's why I decided to kind of take the leap and see what would happen. And, and you took that leap, but yet you wound up riding the pine at the end of the bench. So talk to us about the next part of that journey. I did. So a couple of things happened. Um, after my junior year, I thought, man, this is really terrible and, and I should probably transfer schools. But I was a little bit older at that point in time, right? Because I'd been out of school for three years before I went back to junior college. So I really couldn't risk doing that. And I kept talking to my junior college coach and uh, he's like, just hang in there, hang in there. And that summer during between my junior and senior year, every day I'd go to the gym at nine in the morning, I'd work out and uh, and then in the afternoon, I'd play these pickup games or practice games. And I mean, everybody in LA that was a player showed up at the men's gym at UCLA. So Magic Johnson was there, Norm Nixon, all these great guys from the Lakers. And a lot of the games, a lot of the days, it was like an, an NBA all-star game in this gym. And and I'd play in these these practice games every day. And, and uh, but it was still struggling to keep up because the, the players were so much faster and so much quicker than they'd been in junior college that it was a struggle for me to figure out what I needed to do to really compete out there on the floor. I was just kind of running up down the floor, kind of lost. And one day uh, I was standing on the sidelines and I, I'd been trying to catch these faster players. And, and I felt this big hand clamp down on my shoulder. When I turned around, it was Wilt Chamberlain, uh, who had been uh, played in the NBA for, for 12 plus years, 15 years, something like that. He'd retired. He still lived up in Bel Air above UCLA. And he'd come down every afternoon and work out with the young guys. And so he grabbed me and he, and he said, look, he said, you know, your job is not to catch these smaller, faster players. He said, come on out here with me. And he put me out, he took me out on the court and he put me right in front of the basket. And he said, look, you see this basket behind you. Your job is to stop players from getting there. Your job is to make them miss their shot then collect the rebound, throw it up to the guard, let them go down the other end and score it. And your job is to cruise up to half court and kind of see what's going on. And it was this very short comment and very short period of time 
but it was life-changing for me because he took the mystery out of the game of basketball for me. He showed me something that I could really be great at at that moment in time. And I was, I was like, I know I'm not fast enough to catch these other guys. I'm probably not the best scorer out here on the floor. But you know what? By God, I can play defense and I can stop players from getting there. And that's something I could be really good at. And so I, I focused on that conversation. And in my presentation, I called that knowing your job. Like, what's that one thing you're excellent at? You know, how many of you are running around trying to do everything when there's really only one thing you can be great at? And in that little five-minute conversation, I turned into a 12-year NBA career and being named defensive player of the year twice, et cetera. But that was, a, that was a life-changing moment. Now, it didn't get any better my senior year. I still didn't play. But that kept me going. And then my junior college coach, Tom, had told me, he said, look, you know, we're not planning for next year. We're planning for three or four years down the road. You really have a chance to try out for a professional team, whether it's in the NBA, Europe, or somewhere. So he said, if you're not going to play in the games, you got to make the practices your game. You still have to be the first guy there and the last one to leave. Because he said, if you continue to work out, something good will happen. And so I call that doing what you've been asked to do. You know, he gave me a game plan and I followed it. I executed it. And despite no success around me at the current time, I continued to focus in on that. And when it came time to trap for the NBA, because I had continued to work, because I continued to listen to my coach and got myself in some semblance of condition, despite not playing in the games, um, that gave me a little bit of a leg up when it came to trap for the NBA. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. So you were not drafted. You're talking about trying out. So how did that, what was that process like for trying out for, for well, teams? Well, this is what happened is that when we got, when I got done with my senior year, coaching staff at the time at UCLA wasn't very helpful in terms of you know, introducing me to anybody from the NBA. So my junior college coach and I, we decided, well, you know, who'd be the most likely to give me a chance? We decided we'd look at all the worst teams in the NBA because they're the ones that needed the most help and be most likely to try uh, try out a new guy. Because every year there's only about 50 to 60 new jobs in the NBA, if that, right? And there's 10,000 seniors that graduate that play college basketball every year. So we had to get creative. And uh, so we started calling all these terrible teams in the, in, the, in the NBA and asking for a tryout. This is before the internet. So if you didn't show up on somebody's scouting uh, newsletter, they did, you, you didn't exist. And uh, Frank Layden with the Utah Jazz, they just come off a horrible season. They were last in almost every statistical category in the NBA. And we called them on the phone and the coach answered the phone. There was no secretary back then. It was very, like the front office was like five people. And he said, Mark Eaton, never heard of him. You know, send me a tape. And we did. And he claimed he, uh, all he got was 30 minutes of me taking on off my warm-ups at UCLA. But I had paid my own way to go play at a couple of free agent tryout camps, one in Jersey City, one in Cincinnati. A couple of NBA scouts saw me there. Somebody said something to Frank. And he took a shot on me as a fourth-round pick in the 82 draft, which basically is just a guarantee to come try out. 
right? There's usually no guaranteed money or anything like that. You have to be on the team for about four months, not get cut in order to get your salary for that year. And uh, then, but then he came out and watched me play after that into the Southern Summer League I was playing at in California. He saw just enough where he said, you know what? He goes, I'm willing to take a chance on you. He said, you know, if you'll come to our training camp a month early before any other players get there and get on our weight training program, work with our coaches, get on our running program, I'll, I'll give you a chance to play for one year. And the salary then was $45,000. And I said, coach, I'll be there. And um, so I moved to Salt Lake City a month before the training camp started. I worked with the coaches. I got on a running program. I changed my nutrition. I hit the weight room. And, um, and Frank gave me a chance. And by February that year, I was the starting center of the Utah Jazz. Wow, that's so wild. And at, at, at that point, you know, was, it, was it real to you? Like, did, it, did you see yourself then, hey, this is what I'm going to do for the next umpteen years? No, honestly, my initial thought process going into the NBA is I just want to be a good backup center, maybe bounce around to a few different teams, make enough money to buy a house. And um, that, was my, that was kind of my career objective. Um, but good news, bad news was that the Jazz were in a very tough financial um, position at that point in time and routinely traded players to make payroll. And so uh, the starting center uh, got uh, traded uh, just before the All-Star break. And Frank Layden, the coach, came to me and said, hey, look, you're our starting center now. And uh, so that was fortuitous for me. And at that point in time, it was like, okay. I'd had enough success where I said, you know, I can, I can play this game. And I had a couple of instances earlier in the season when the coach had put me in even just for a few minutes and I'd had success blocking shots and creating some fast break opportunities for our team. And I remember one day in particular, like my second month playing, I'd, I'd blocked like five shots in five minutes and um, turned around and started to run up the court. And I looked over the coaching staff and they were all nodding at each other. I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can hang in this game and I can stay here. And then once I became a starting center, then I sort of had to reset my goals again. So then I said, all right, I'm going to hang with this team and be here for a longer period of time. I want to be a good starting center. I want to be one of the better starting centers. And, and how, how long after your first year there did Stockton and Malone join the fold? Uh, two years later. So uh, we had um, my, my rookie year, we were 30 and 52. My second year, we added Thurl Bailey from NC State, Bobby Hanson from Iowa, and uh, we and we already had Adrian Dantley, Daryl Griffith, a guy named Ricky Green, who was a guard from Michigan. And we ended up winning the division for the first time in team history, making the playoffs for the first time in team history. And that was a, that. And then the next year, John showed up. The year after that, Carl showed up, and we were off to the races. Fantastic. Any any special memorable stories or takeaway lessons from spending your time with with those guys? Well, I, I think, you know, early on, Frank Layden would tell us things like, hey, if you're not going to be in the playoffs, we're going to affect the playoffs. And I'd rather lose the game by two points instead of three because two points is closer to winning. And he'd do these little things to try and get us to start to build this winning culture. And I think that when John and Carl showed up a couple of years later, we really took it to another level because we finally had a solid cast of characters that could really go out and compete and, and not just win a few games, but win the division and win 50 games and be one of the contenders in the NBA. Uh, and, and over time, the culture that those guys helped solidify with the team was one of, they, come, they came to training camp in great shape. They were ready to go from day one. They played every game. They wanted to be in every, you know, 
every contest, um, all four quarters, all minutes. They didn't take days off. Uh, and that became the culture of the team. And I think that was really one of our calling cards is that when you show up to play the jazz, you're, you're in for a dogfight. And, um, and so I think culturally, that's something that has stayed with the team well over 35 plus years since that time. Uh, as that, that the Jazz are known as guys that are going to be tough on defense. Um, you know, it's a, the, the arena in Salt Lake City is a tough place to play. And that was just fine with us because it really established us as one of the more credible teams in the NBA. Talk to us a little bit, if you would, about the end of your playing career and your transition out of the NBA. So I spent 12 years with the Jazz. Um, you know, my body finally couldn't take the pounding anymore, and, and I didn't know uh, I didn't know what to do next. And uh, it was it's tough. I think anytime you have to reinvent yourself, it can be a very challenging thing. And I wasn't feeling very good at the time. And it took me a few years to kind of figure it out. I got involved in the restaurant business with a, a friend of mine from from here in Park City, uh, and that that was a very successful venture. And, um, and then I was doing some broadcasting and then I meant I ran some youth programs for at-risk kids, which is something I was always very passionate about, but I still kind of just kind of, you know, I was doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And, um, and it's hard to kind of find that new channel that's really going to light your fire. And about 10 years ago, uh, I, I started this motivational speaking thing because people had always asked me to come and tell my crazy story of going from an auto mechanic to an all-star. And, um, and once I kind of figured that out, which took another four or five years, then I, I found that really, that really scratches the itch. It really, um, it, it gets my entrepreneurial genes going. Um, it's fulfilling, it's challenging, it's sales, it's marketing. You know, you're just like the NBA, you're only as good as your last speech, uh, or in the restaurant business, you're only as good as your last meal. And uh, so I think that's what that's what excites me about it. And the fact that I get to give back and I inspire other people, give them a few tools they can use to be successful, um, I think is really what keeps me going. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about your book, The Four Commitments of a Winning Team. What was your inspiration for writing that? Well, um, initially, uh, I, I thought, well, I can, I can survive without a book uh, because I do have NBA highlights when I show up. And so you're at least going to listen to me for a few minutes uh, when, I, when I stand up on stage. And then I'd spent a, a better part of two years writing my speech with a professional coach uh, to really target business and business issues. Because you, when you get on stage, you really need to solve a problem. Uh, people bring you in not just to hear a great story. They bring you in to help them do something better. And you need to know what that is. So I spent time, I spent time doing that. And over a period of time, uh, I decided, well, people always say, well, what do I do next? Now that I've left, now that I, after the presentation, you know, I've got a few ideas here. Is there anything else I can read? Is there anything else I can do? And so that was really the, the inspiration behind putting it together in a book. And it was my first foray into writing a book. It was challenging. It took a way longer than I thought it was ever going to take. But uh, we finally got it done last year, and um, and it done well with it. Uh, it's it's really it's it's been uh, um, pleasing to me that I'm pleasantly surprised that it's been received as well as it has been, and a lot of people get a lot of benefit out of it. So that's been kind of exciting as well. Outstanding, Mark. Take us through some of the. Well, take us through a high-level overview of the book. And there's 
What are these four commitments of a winning team that an organization has to take on? Well, we talked about a couple of them already. So it goes back to the Wilt Chamberlain story of knowing your job. And, I, and I've got a couple exercises in the book where people can really kind of double down on, on who they already are and try and figure out what their strengths, their character traits and skills are that they already possess. Because they're, it's my belief that there's one reason that people do business with you and engage with you. And you need to understand that, whether it's your integrity, your honesty, uh, or your ability to be a great coach or a strategy, you know, really good at strategizing, whatever it might be, you need to understand that that's a skill you already possess and ask yourself, what else can I do with this skill? How can I leverage it even more than I am today? The second point, as I mentioned, when I was at UCLA, I wasn't playing. My coach continued to, from junior college, continued to ask me to work out uh, even though I wasn't getting in the games. And I call that doing what you've been asked to do. You really know what your customers want from you. When did you last, when did you last ask them? Scale of one to 10, how clear are you about their priorities? Uh, you know, where would you rate yourself right now? Uh, and then the third point, when I came to the Jazz, and, and as I mentioned, we were on a bad team in a bad market, losing money. And our coach would tell us, like, if you guys would just stop competing with each other so much and start cooperating with each other, the individual accolades will show up. And I call that making other people look good. But the better you make others look, the better you look to them. And so how focused are you in making the people you work with look good on a scale of one to 10? Is there somebody you need to acknowledge this week, somebody you need to meet with, somebody you need to have a cup of coffee with, um, just to check in with? Because as we talked about, you know, we really get power inspired when we're out, out helping other people, internally or externally. And then the fourth point was what I did well in the basketball court was I protected my teammates. I gave them the ability to go out and try and steal the ball because they knew if they missed, I would get between their man and the basket. They knew they could count on me and they knew that I had their back. And so I call that protecting other people. And, um, you know, do you really protect other people at work? Are you really there for them? Uh, and I think that's the key to trust. And that's the key to long-term loyalty is really being there for the people around you. And so I think sometimes in business, we use the terminology, we're a team, we're a team, we're a team, and don't really understand what it is from the inside out. And having played the NBA for 12 years, I understand it at a pretty high level. And in the NBA, you have to get teamwork figured out today. You can't wait till the next board meeting or corporate retreat or whatever it is. Um, if you lose three games in a row, you could be living in a new city next week. So you have to close the doors, kick the coaches out, and talk it out and figure it out. And that's where these four commitments came from. I love it. And it is interesting because a lot of these things you're talking about are, are skills you learned while playing basketball, but they translate not only to business, but to life so very well. They do. And, I, and that's what I found. And that's uh, in spending the time putting the presentation together from a business perspective. Uh, there's there's very universal applicability uh, in terms of um, there's always I, I haven't found a business situation yet um, that um, that I couldn't relate back to one of my four commitments. So, uh, you know, it starts with you. You've got to understand what your job is and doing what you do well. And if you do that, you allow the other people around you to honor their roles on the team as well. And um, starting with that basic perspective, working through your execution, looking at how well am I taking care of my customers? How am I taking care of my people? Do I really understand what they're, what, what they're doing? Um, you know, I, I have a friend of mine who runs a, a holistic health clinic up in Idaho. And most healthcare practitioners are, are small little shops, you know, in a shopping center or somewhere. And he's run a multi-million dollar business for a number of years, has now expanded into two other states. And I asked him, I said, what was the turning point for you? And he said, well, when I finally started listening to my staff, he said, I would come in, we'd have these staff meetings. I'd tell everybody what they needed to do. 
how we need to be successful, this, that, and the other thing. We just kept staying stagnant. And so one day I asked them, like, what should I do? And they said, well, if you just listen to us a little bit more, we have a couple of ideas that might help. And so he said, you know, I used to think it was all about taking care of the clients and customers, which is very important. But he said, what I really found important was I really need to take care of my staff. My staff makes my engine run. And as long as I take care of those guys, our sales continue to grow. Let's talk a little bit before we wrap up, because I know there's some causes that are very important to you that you champion. Let's talk about some of these other things you're doing outside of the world of speaking that are making an impact in the world today. Well, there's a couple of things. Um, one is a friend of mine named Richard Paul Evans, who's a 38 times uh, bestseller, bestselling author, lives here in Utah. He started something called the Tribe of Kings, and it's really focused on men and pulling men together and helping them have better, just more friendly relationships with each other. That uh, he really feels that in society today, men have been a bit maligned, and sometimes for good reason, that men don't have very good men friendships. And so he's put together this organization, it's Tribe of Kings, K-Y-N-G-S, just to help guys um, have better, get together and hook up with other guys and, and get off the video games and uh, start to try and abolish domestic abuse and things like that and just helping men be men. So that's one thing. Um, the second one is, a, is a, a veterans group called Operation Pay It Forward. And it's based here in Utah, and it takes veterans out into the wilderness on hunting trips and things like that. And that's been life-changing for guys who uh, have struggled to open up about what things occurred and the PTSD and the, and the battle wounds and scars that they have that they continue to carry with after they come home. And so uh, those two um, operations are, are my favorite charities at, at the moment. I love it. Mark, what's next for you? Um, what's next for me is um, a bit of a right turn. Uh, I'm working with a friend of mine in Chicago and who loved my four commitments and is a best-selling children's author. And we're creating a series of 10 books focused on third, fourth, and fifth graders on what it's like to be tall, what it's like to be different. And we've created a character named Marvelous Molly, who um, is an eighth grade girl. And, um, and she's going to... Uh, appear in this series of books and, and she's going to embody the four commitments of a winning team in her interactions with her family and the kids in the school. And I think it's really going to be a lot of fun. So we're, we're working on that now and that'll hopefully come out um, in the fall. Um, but um, it's a, it's a little different twist. It's not the business audience, but at the same time, I've always had a passion for kids and I think helping kids understand how to navigate the world a little bit better, giving them the values they need to make good decisions uh, and and helping them understand what it's like to maybe be a little bit different, um, I think is, um, is is really going to be fun. I'm really excited about it. Oh, that sounds incredible, and we can't wait for that to come out. So we'll, we'll definitely keep everybody posted as to when that pops up. Uh, I've absolutely loved this discussion today. We are at time. As you know, I wrap up every episode of my show by asking my guest a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping, the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? I think to reconsider that your success is directly related to the success of the people around you. And be coachable, uh, be willing to listen, and be willing to help uh, someone else next to you. And I, I think you'll have a much higher uh, quality of life and a much higher degree of satisfaction that you really feel like you're out there making it happen. Beautifully said. Mark, where can people find you? 
sevenfootfour.com. However you want to spell it, it's, it's uh, the number seven letters, Frank Tom and the number four uh, is the best way to find me. Just Google Mark Eaton, I'll show up somewhere. Very good. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well as in the Daily Helping app available on iTunes and Android. Mark, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You bet, Dr. Richard. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And I also want to thank each and every one of you who tuned in to listen to this today. If you like what you heard, go give us a subscribe on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 